Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. We, of course, are doing a question and answer session today. Uh, As promised, we do these about once every six months in conclusion of a a current events type uh, teaching series. So this is in conclusion to our uh, Welcome to Babylon series that we're wrapping up officially today. But before we get into that, I just want to give you a word about Christmas to give you a little predictability in terms of planning your calendars and so forth. So this year, of course, Christmas Eve, December 24th, Saturday, 5 p.m., we're going all in on Christmas Eve for a couple of reasons. One, uh, because there's no better time to make much of Jesus uh, than the Christmas season in a sense. Certainly that's true here at Crossgate Church, but you may well be aware that Christmas Eve is the number one day of the year where unchurched and lost people will likely invite your, excuse me, will likely take up your invitation to come to church. Uh, That's true even more so than Easter. Uh, your, your lost neighbors, your, your unchurched family members will more than likely come to a Christmas Eve service than any other service throughout the year. And so throughout the month of December, we're really going to emphasize reaching and having an outward focus, not just so that we can celebrate Jesus as a church, but so that we can have a number of folks from our community join us at 5 p.m. on Saturday, Christmas Eve, December 24th, right here at Crossgate. Now, What about Sunday morning? So every seven years, this happens. It happened seven years ago, it happened 14 years ago, and on and on and on. When Christmas Day falls on a Sunday morning, what do you do with that? So we're going all in on Christmas Eve because we want to be an outward-focused church, and so Saturday, December 24th, is gonna be our primary worship gathering for the weekend. What about Sunday morning? Myself and our worship team will pre-record a a Christmas devotional and time of worship that you can enjoy online in your home with your family. We want to encourage everyone to worship the Lord together as a family in their own homes and enjoy that special day together on Sunday morning. So we will not meet Sunday morning. That Saturday night will be our main weekend worship experience. We'll, We'll tell you more about that in the days to come, but we do want you to be aware of the calendaring issues with that so that you can schedule with you and with your families. Now, that said, uh, if you have the Slido app on your phone or on your device there, or you can go to slido.com, many of you have already done that. Uh, basically, you want to go to Slido, put in the event code of 3137361, and it will take you to what looks kind of like a chat room. Okay, so why don't you do that now? Many of you are already there. And what you'll see is a series of questions. Right now, I think we have 25 questions that have been submitted. And what you can do is you can take a look at the questions. You can go down the list and hit like on whichever questions you really want to hear answered. And whichever questions get the most likes automatically bump up in the list. Okay. And of course, you can also type in your own question. And then if that gets enough likes over the course of the service, and that makes it up into that top a tier of questions, and I will try my best to answer that question on the spot. Uh, We had several questions submitted yesterday evening, and so I spent some time late last night and early this morning uh, taking a look at some of these questions and and deciding which uh, which ones we would most likely hit. So what we're going to do is we're just going to go straight to the first question at the top of the list, and really what you see is the first uh, two questions are very similar in theme. 
Okay, so, and this is what I do oftentimes on these uh, question and answers, is, it, is if we have uh, two or three questions that are similar and they overlap, then I will basically lump all those together in one answer. So let's jump right in. Uh, the first question, of course, is I have a friend who is currently in a homosexual relationship. If I invite them to Crossgate and they visit with their partner, how will they be treated? And then the, the second question is, do you think a Christ follower should attend a homosexual wedding? And there's a couple of other questions along these lines as well, if you look a little further down. So let's just knock them all out at the same time. I think what everyone is basically trying to ask is this. How can I love my LGBTQ family member, friend, neighbor, without compromising my conviction about biblical sexuality? And by the way, let's point out the fact that these are the top questions that are being asked. I mean, these get more likes than anything else. Why? Because this is exactly where we're at as a culture, right? I mean, this is not some theoretical question. This is real life, and so many of our families are, are, are dealing with this in one way or another. I'm counseling with three different families right now at Crossgate Church who are, who are dealing with this in a very firsthand way, and, and, and they're looking to find out what the Bible says, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what really matters. It's not Phil Kramer's opinion. Uh, no offense, but it's not your opinion either. It's what does the Bible say? All right, so first of all, let me remind you of something that I shared with you in a message a few weeks ago, uh, just about the, the increasing uh, number of people, especially in younger generations, who are identifying as LGBTQ. Uh, this is from a Gallup poll uh, taken just earlier this year. Listen to this. The percent of U.S. adults who identify as LGBTQ, uh, that is something other than heterosexual, has doubled over the last 10 years, from 3.5% in 2012 to 7.1%. The increase is due to high LGBTQ self-identification among Gen Z adults, that's ages 18 to 25. Younger U.S. adults are much more likely to identify as LGBTQ than older generations. More than one in five, or 21%, of Gen Z adults identify as LGBTQ. That's almost double the proportion of millennials, who are 26 to 41, at 10.5% and nearly five times the proportion of Gen X who are 42 to 57 at 4.2%. And of course, as you get into the older generations, that number becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. The bottom line is this, according to Gallup, as the youngest Americans slowly outnumber and replace the oldest, the number of LGBTQ identifying adults will only increase and likely at a much faster rate than past generations. All right, so that brings up a very important concept for the life of the church, and that is what I call second-person repentance. Now, go back to seventh-grade English class. Second-person is when you're addressing someone as you. So it implies kind of a close, personal proximity to the other person. Third-person repentance is when you're re referring to someone in the third person. He, him, they. Third person implies a relational distance. Okay? Now, for years as a church and churches, we have been really good at what we call third person repentance. Those people way over there need to get right with God. He needs to get right with God. Yeah, that guy way over there. See, we don't have personal relational proximity to those people, so it's very easy to say they need to get right with God. But now what we're finding, according to Gallup, and we already know this, there is a much closer relational proximity, for example, to people who identify as LGBTQ because it's an increasing number. 
And you talk to your kids or your grandkids, and they will tell you, yes, there's a number of people who identify in some way, shape, or form in their sphere of, of friendship or influence, unlike probably a lot of people who are, say, 50 and, and older. Okay, so the challenge is going to be, how do we engage lovingly in second-person repentance? How do we engage someone who we have a, a, a friendship with, with, with the truth of God's Word in a loving way? That's a challenge because a lot of times, once you have a personal relationship with somebody, your, your convictions go out the window. You, you don't, in some cases, we just decide, well, maybe, maybe what we believed before wasn't so important after all because now my child or my grandchild is now part of this, and so I'll just embrace that and not worry about what the Bible says. Okay, so here's a couple of specific questions that certainly I've heard. My child has come out as LGBTQ. Now what? Right? That, that, is, that is incredibly real-world, real-time. And I would direct your attention to Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. Many of you are familiar with this. Luke 15, let's just read 11 through 13. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So that is right there a slap in the face. Dad, you're not even dead, and I want my inheritance. All that you've taught me, all that you've said is important, I don't want it. I want to do my own thing, okay? And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And I want you to remember those two words, far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So what would I say to someone who has said to me, my child has just come out as LGBTQ, now what? I would say, first of all, recognize that your child has cast a vote. And this is one of the biggest and hardest things of being a parent is that everybody gets to cast a vote. Did you know that? I mean, every single person, every single child eventually gets to vote. And sometimes they vote along the lines of what you've taught them, and other times they vote against what you've taught them. And in this case, this young man decided to go to a far country. All right, that means that he's off in a whole nother world. Okay, and that, that's where he's at. Okay, so that, I, that's always important to understand that. Uh, I think it's important that um, we lovingly communicate our convictions to our children, regardless of the votes that they cast. We certainly shouldn't just, just cave in, and we should always beware of what I call the identity trap. The identity trap is this, especially when it comes to LGBTQ, is that the, the LGBTQ narrative is that this is not what you do, it's who you are. It's your identity. And so if anyone comes to you and disagrees with what you're doing, they're actually attacking your identity. And that is an incredible challenge, especially when you're dealing with, with your children, right, or your, or your grandchildren, someone who's in close proximity, a loving relationship with you. Now, let's just, let's just hit the street, rubber meet the road. What's next week? Thanksgiving, right? You're going to invite your LGBTQ child or grandchild to Thanksgiving at your house? You've got to make a decision, right? How about social media? You, you have an LGBTQ son or grandson or child or, or, or friend, and they're, they're getting on social media and posting this, that, and the other. I mean, do you, do you block them? Do you unfriend them? Do, do you like? Do you sheepishly like? Do you enthusiastically like? Something to think about. What about a wedding? That was one of the other questions. Would you go to a same-sex wedding? All right, well, that's, that's, that's kind of a generic question. I guess I'll just apply it to myself. If one of my children came out as LGBTQ, and then they said, hey, I'm getting married to so-and-so. Are you going to come to the wedding? Great question. Okay, so let me, let me give some answers. First of all, I think when we see the, the, the father figure in Luke 15, he was always eager to maintain a relationship with his son. Okay, he didn't disown him. 
He didn't say, son, I never want to see you again. Get out of my face, right? And we don't know all the details of the story, but here's a guy who is desperate to maintain a relationship with his son. He didn't, he didn't compromise, but, but, but he sought to maintain a relationship, and, and, he, and he created the space so that even the son knew, you know what, in my father's house, I, I, wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be living this way. And, and, he, and he created that, that, that opportunity to come back. So um, Thanksgiving, absolutely, I would invite if one of my kids identified as LGBTQ, I would invite them to Thanksgiving. I might say, now look, I mean, you're not going to see a lot of PDA, public displays of affection for me and your mama, and we don't expect to see that in our home during Thanksgiving. You know how we feel about that, okay? I, I, I would express some convictions there, but I certainly wouldn't say, you're not welcome. Okay, what about a wedding? Okay, again, would I perform the ceremony? no. Would I, if it was my daughter, would I, quote, unquote, give her away in, in the ceremony? No. Would I find some way, somehow, to attend that ceremony? Yes. Would it mean I would sit on the back row or I'd sit somewhere in the middle? I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't gotten to that bridge yet, y'all, okay? I'd, I'd still have to pray about that. But I'll tell you this, I'm, I'm not going to show my, my child the hand and say, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't want you as part of my life and I don't want to be a part of your life, okay? Because if, if that happens, because here, here's the thing. If, if, if your child or your grandchild is in that situation, I take comfort and peace in knowing that the last chapter of your child's story has not yet been written. I, I truly believe that's the case. And as long as that child has breath in their lungs, there is hope. And, 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 and there, there is a desperation, certainly in prayer, for me to see that child come back around. Uh, fervently pray and fast for your child. Mark 9, 29, Jesus was, was, uh, was his disciples were trying to cast out a demon and they couldn't do it. And Jesus said, Mark 9, 29, this kind is only driven out by prayer and fasting, right? So I, I, I would do whatever I could to maintain a relationship with my child without, without compromising the, the core of my convictions, all right? Here's another one, very practical. I have a friend who is currently in a homosexual relationship. If I invite them to Crossgate and they visit with their partner, how will they be treated? Okay, so that's a great question. And over the years, there have been a few times, so I'm told that we've had some same-sex couples come to Crossgate and visit. Okay, so first let me say this. Anybody who walks in those doors with the intention of worshiping God is welcome. Okay, anybody. Who, but wait a minute. You're talking about same-sex people here, Pastor. Hey, I got news for you, folks. I would say almost every single week, we have adulterers, we have fornicators, and we have other sinners walk through that door. Are you a sinner? Welcome to church, okay? And if, if listen, if you can't handle it, if, if a same-sex couple walks on our campus, I, I guarantee you there is a small, rigidly legalistic, and probably dying church out there somewhere that would love to have you, okay? We welcome everybody to Crossgate Church. Does that mean we're not going to tell them the truth? Of course we're going to tell them the truth. What does the Bible say? That's what we always say. What does the Bible say? So here's, here's what would happen. What would happen with the same sex couple is the exact same thing that would happen with anybody else. Come to our campus. We're going to welcome them. Our First Steps team is going to do a great job of warmly greeting them. Uh, they're going to be encouraged to fill out a Next Steps card, just like all of our guests are, and hopefully they'd bring that card to Next Steps where I would get the chance to meet them. We'd give them a little gift bag. Uh, within 24 hours of, of turning in that card, they're going to receive a text or a phone call from Pastor Keith, our Next Steps pastor, uh, just thanking them for their visit and, and encouraging them to, to attend Explore Crossgate. Uh, 
Uh, and then within a week, they're going to receive a handwritten note card from me, just like any other guest would. And then within two weeks, hopefully, we can set up a time to meet with them. One of our pastors would set up a time uh, to meet with them, uh, to hear their story, to find out a little more about them, and to assess where they are with Jesus Christ, if they're saved or whether they're lost. Because here's, here's the thing, y'all. You've got to understand this. The gospel is not primarily about a sexual ethic. The gospel is primarily about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because when you get that settled, then all the other stuff starts taking care of itself. All right, so, so the, the first thing I'm not going to do is come off the top rope in wrestling language, okay? Just come off the top rope at them about their, their, their current condition of their lives. We'll get around to that. But the first thing I want to know is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord? Okay, so in other words, if a same-sex same couple, say that ten times fast, if a same-sex couple comes on to our campus, we're going to treat them like everybody else, somebody who needs Jesus, all right? Now, here's one other one. This was a little further down the list only because it was uh, submitted just this morning, but it's, uh, it's very relevant, okay? In one of the sermons, you talked about little compromises turning into big compromises. Is being close friends with a homosexual a compromise? Well, only if Jesus was flat out wrong, right? Okay, only if Jesus was flat out wrong. Okay, I want to tell you the tale of two Christians. On the one hand, you have a Christian who, when, when I challenge them to try to, to, to try to have gospel conversations with their lost friends and neighbors, they'll sheepishly say something like this. Man, Pastor Phil, I'm just, I'm not sure I really know any lost people. Okay, it happens. It happens. I mean, I've known a number of Christians over the years who have just said, you know, I just, I don't think I know any lost people. Okay. Here's the other Christian. The other Christian would say something like this. I wish I had more friends in the LGBTQ community. I wish I had a greater proximity to people in that community. Now, what does the Bible say? Matthew 11, verse 19, Jesus said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's Jesus now, okay? And I wrote this down early this morning because I thought it was important to say, if you aren't accused by anyone of possibly approving of sin based on your proximity to it, you're probably not living and loving like Jesus. Okay, you know what I mean? I mean, could anyone even possibly accuse you of supporting a sinner due to your proximity to them? If not, you're probably not developing enough relationships with people who are on the margin and, and on the fringe. Okay, but check it out. Jesus did not simply just put his arms around sinners and say, good for you, brother. God bless you. Let, let me help you get on with your sin. Here's what Jesus said. Matthew, excuse me, Luke chapter 5, verses 31 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Absolutely. We're going to welcome people, but we're going to tell them the truth. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. So yes, I totally believe it is possible to, to, to adequately and authentic, authentically love your LGBTQ family member, friends and neighbors without compromising your biblical convictions. Okay, we knocked out about three or four questions at one time there, so let's see where we're at now. Okay, we got that one, got that one. Oh, boom, okay. In one message, now this is the number one question. In one message, Pastor Phil said, baby's not birth control. What does the Bible say about birth control? Great question. 
And that one was submitted last night, so I had a little bit of time to think about it. Aren't you glad you're not up here this morning? <laughs> hey, check it out, y'all. My life would be a whole lot easier if we weren't doing this. But here, here's the deal. I could get up here and preach a heartwarming sermon every single Sunday, and we could just leave and go eat lunch. But I have been charged by God to ask this question, what does the Bible say about every issue in life? Okay, so that's why we're doing this this morning. So you may remember we had a message about uh, life in Babylon, and we talked about uh, where God said, multiply and do not decrease to, the pe to his people in Babylon. And I said that we need to think about babies, not birth control. Now, the ultimate purpose for me saying that was I was talking about the spiritual birth rate. The spiritual birth rate is where we lead people, lost people, to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and they are born again. That's the spiritual birth rate, and I was talking about how we, we are way behind the curve. Every church is way behind the curve in leading people to Jesus Christ and seeing people spiritually born. But I also pointed out the fact that the biological and physical birth rate in the United States, and certainly in the West, is going down, 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 down. And I even said that we have almost come to the point, I think probably within 20 or 30 years, we will get to the point where the birth rate isn't even adequate enough to replace all the people who are dying. In other words, the overall population numbers are gonna start to drop down, down, down. And so I talked about that briefly. But that's what gave rise to this question. What does the Bible say about birth control, specifically about biological birth control? Well, again, what does the Bible say? So let, let's, let's look at three biblical assumptions. First of which is this, life begins at conception, and all God's people said, amen. I hope you say amen. Life begins at conception. Psalm 139. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet they were not, there was none of them. Life begins at conception. Two, a child is always a blessing. Okay, always a blessing, Psalm 127. Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Okay, so I, there, there, I can't think of a, a scenario in the Bible where a child was not seen as a, 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 as a blessing, but rather as a burden. Okay, and then here's the third thing. God has commanded us, as you well know, to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1.28, which of course he affirmed in his word to the, to the uh, exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29.6, multiply and do not decrease. Okay, so what about biological birth control? Okay, first of all, the, the, the term or the phrase birth control is kind of misleading because what we're really talking about is two different, two different categories here. We're talking about either conception prevention or we're talking about life denial. Okay, conception prevention or life denial. All right, so when it comes to conception prevention, what is the most radical form of conception prevention? It's abstinence. It works 100% of the time. If, 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 you're, if you don't have sex with somebody, they can't get pregnant. Well, except for Mary, and she was like the only exception, okay? So conception prevention, there's certainly abstinence, but I don't, I don't think that's really a, an option for married people for the most part, certainly not at my house, all right? But, but I will tell you this, there's other conception prevention options 
that fall into that category. Uh, for example, the barrier method, okay? Y'all remember about that in, in, the, in, in, your, in your health class in high school or whatever, the, the barrier method. That happens to be what takes place in my house, and somebody said, yeah, that's why you got five kids, brother. Well, <laughs> well he, here's the deal, yes. There is at least one child in our home that, that came, came into the world something like this. Honey, I think I might be pregnant. What? Okay, has that happened to you? It's okay, but I will tell you this. All five of the children we have are absolute blessings from God and nothing less than a total blessing from the Lord. Now, there are some other options for conception, biological conception prevention. Okay, some of which are that, 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 that prevent conception would be some of your hormonal birth control practices, whether it's an oral pill or some type of implant or an injection or whatever. But keep this in mind, that some of those hormonal birth control methods have three functions. One, they prevent ovulation. I know we're getting like super medical here, but listen, I'm not a doctor. You can look all this up online. It's super easy to find, okay? One, most oral or, or implantable hormonal birth control methods prevent conception, excuse me, uh, prevent ovulation. Two, they thicken the cervical mucus that prevents that sperm from finding that egg. But I want you to listen to me now. The third function of a hormonal birth control method is to prevent implement, implantation. You say, what's that? That's when after that sperm and that egg come together, they have to find a place to, to live. Or, or should I say, that little baby, that life, has to find a place to live. And guess where it goes to live? Inside of the mother's uterus by implanting on the wall. One, the, the, the last ditch uh, you know, layer of prevention in a, in a hormonal birth control is, is, to, is to thin out the lining of the uterus so that that little life can't implant on the inside of the uterus and dies. Okay, so, so, so what I'm telling you is that, that one of the functions of that hormonal birth, biological birth control method is to prevent that human life from living or continuing to live. And so now that, that's taken you from conception prevention over to life denial. Right, now, of course, there's, there's plenty of, of people out there that would, that would help you to deny the, the life of that little baby inside of you. The, the most radical being, of course, is, is surgical or, or medicinal birth con, uh, abortion, right? Is, is, is going in and surgically or, or medicinally somehow snuffing out the life of a baby. I think everybody here would, would, would describe that as absolutely evil and wicked, okay? The morning after pill, same kind of thing. The morning after pill prevents... That little, that little fertilized egg, that, that human life, from implanting on the inside of the uterus. Why do I bring all this up? I bring all this up to simply say that if, if you're married and you're sexually active and, and, and you're practicing some form of birth control, do your homework and pray about it. Understand all the details that go into this and even the fine line, because there is a line, between conception prevention and life denial. Now, Here's one other. Another question asked about abortion being a women's health issue. Uh, and that's something that certainly our, our, our kids are being told in school all the time and, and through the media. Hey, this is ultimately a woman's health issue. Okay, so let's go back to our assumptions. Life begins at conception, right? When, when that sperm and that egg unite, you have a human life. Okay, it's, it's, it's by definition, the degrees come as time goes by, but, but by definition, that is a human life life. So my question is this, 
how is abortion a female or a woman's health issue other than to help that, that woman have a healthy pregnancy and give birth to a healthy baby? I mean, to say abortion is a woman's health issue is like equating uh, that baby with a cancer, right? I mean, cancer is a, a woman's health. Breast cancer is a woman's health issue. You want to get in there and kill that cancer. Otherwise, it's going to kill her. I don't see how we equate, generally speaking, I don't see how you equate the presence of, a, of another human life inside of a woman's body with, with, the, with a woman's health issue, other than, again, to, to promote a healthy pregnancy and a healthy birth. So I believe that's what the Bible says about, about those things. Now, what do we got? Ooh, this is another good one. Listen, I'm telling y'all, I mean, okay, here we go. My family loves going to Disney, but I'm troubled by some of Disney's recent statements and policies. Should we stop spending our money on Disney? Okay, why did this question come out? Well, as y'all remember, one of the messages we did talked about taking a stand in Babylon. And one of the subpoints was, in some cases, we might want to take a financial stand. In other words, if, if there's a company or a business that, uh, you know, whose policies or procedures, messaging, whatever, goes against what we believe is, is true in the Word of God, then do we withhold our money from, from that company, uh, you know, in order to effect change? That, that's why this question came about. Okay, you say, what troubling things? I mean, what has Disney done that's so troubling? All right, three things. First of all, after decades of nothing but family-friendly content, and by the way, just last night, Adrian, who's my seven-year-old son, we watched Pete's Dragon like the original Pete's Dragon with all the fun songs and everything. And I mean, we're, we're, we're singing and dancing in the living room while we're watching this movie, you know, a dragon, a dragon, that's why I got, you know. Okay, does anyone know what Pete's Dragon? Come on now, help me out here. Okay, yes, many of y'all know the songs, okay? We're watching Pete's Dragon. We love that stuff. We had a great time, okay? But over the last 10 to 15 years, some Disney creatives have made a very intentional effort to insert queerness, that's their words, and normalizing LGBTQ storylines at every possible opportunity, even if it's just a small little segment of a, of a broader movie. Secondly, Disney parks, and if you've been to Disneyland or Disney World in the last 10 or 15 years, you've, you've seen this, have become at best very LGBTQ affirming, and at worst, they have advocated the normalizing of LGBTQ lifestyle choices. And here's a third thing, regarding Florida's Parental Rights and Education Act, uh, which its critics describe as the don't say gay bill. Uh, Disney, who of course has a massive footprint in Florida, Disney has said that they will do whatever they can to get the bill repealed in the legislature or in the courts. The bill basically says that teachers are not to bring up politics of sexuality and gender identity in classes for third graders and below. So the quote unquote don't say gay bill basically says, yes, you're a first grade teacher, no, you're not allowed to uh, you know, discuss the wonders of gender transformation and, and the LGBTQ lifestyle to your first graders. Good night. Who thinks that's a good idea, right? And yet that, Disney says, hey, we're, we, we want this repealed. Okay, so those are some of the troubling things. All right, so here's a couple options. All right, here's a couple different options. And I'm not, I'm not here to tell you exactly what you need to do because at the end of the day, this is a secondary issue. You need to pray about it and follow your convictions how the Lord leads. One option is to simply say this, I'm done with Disney, no amusement parks, no movies, no Disney Plus, no nothing. And that would be called an all-out boycott. That's what you're basically saying, you know what, they're not going to get any of my money. Okay, so, so here's some things to think about. 
As many of you may know, in the mid-1990s, late 1990s, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the denomination with which we partner for local and international missions, uh, proclaimed a boycott of Disney. And they said, hey, we, we are calling on all Southern Baptists not to, to spend any money on Disney whatsoever. Uh, on principle, they were saying, you know, we, in good conscience, we cannot support Disney on purpose. The purpose was, of course, if we can withhold enough money, we can bring Disney financially to its knees and get them to change their policies. Okay, that, that's, that, that, was the, that was the whole purpose behind that. A couple things to think about when you say, hey, just broad brush stroke, boycott the whole thing. First of all, if you choose an all-out boycott on Disney, you need to think about its interconnectedness with ESPN, ABC, Touchstone, Lucasfilm, A&E, History Channel, Pixar, Hulu, and I'm just getting started. Okay? On top of that, are we going to be consistent? If we're going to boycott this company, are we going to boycott all the other companies out there that have similar policies and similar uh, you know, messaging? Uh, again, I, in this message, I told you, if, if, if we were consistent, truth be told, we would boycott our way right back to Little House on the Prairie. I mean, literally, we would like have to go off the grid if we boycotted every company that in some way, shape, or form espoused what we consider to be blatantly unbiblical. Truth be told, Russell Moore said this well. He said, boycotts are not always wrong, but they are rarely effective. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't follow that course of action if that's how the Lord is convicting your heart, but here's another option, okay? How about a pointed effort to communicate to Disney and other companies like it when you stick with your family-friendly fundamentals, we're all in. But when you go woke, you'll go broke, right? Case in point, this past summer, Disney and Pixar released a movie that was based on the Toy Story franchise called Lightyear, and it was supposed to be kind of a, a little side story about Buzz Lightyear and so forth, which I think could have had massive potential to be a fun movie. The problem is they, they very intentionally inserted another storyline in there about a same-sex character that was in a same-sex relationship, and clearly their intention was to normalize it. Okay, well, guess what? A massive number of people said exactly what I just said to Disney. You go woke, you'll go broke. And that movie flopped. I mean, it absolutely flopped. They made hardly any money off that movie compared to what they thought they would, and that was simply because so many people basically said, I want to go to the movies, I don't want to get a lecture, okay? I just want to enjoy myself, I want to take my kids to something family-friendly, I, I don't want to get a lecture on, on your agenda, okay? So that, that, that created something. Now, what was interesting was the number of, of folks, whether it was from the Disney creative department or other people, who came up with all kinds of lame excuses for why the, why the movie didn't do well. Well, it was because of this, or well, it was because of that. And they were dancing around the obvious reason. People don't want to be lectured when they go to the movies, right? Okay. So, so that, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Again, hey, if you stick with what's made your company so great over the years, family-friendly content, we're all in. But, but, but as soon as you deviate from that and you start lecturing people, you're not going to make any money off that. Now, again, I'm not telling you exactly how you need to make that decision. I'm trying to give you some, some, some tools to think and pray through that. But I would tell you, everybody needs to be discerning when it comes to media. Everybody needs to be discerning when it comes to the media. And there's another question on the list a little further down that basically said, hey, how should Christians live and, and, and act and, and, and respond to the media and so forth? Well, again, you got to be discerning. Don't just embrace everything. Search the Scriptures Find out what's right, find out what's true, and make decisions based on biblical convictions. 
Okay, we've got just a couple minutes left. Now, this one on Christian nationalism, tell you what, let, let's do that one because there's like four or five questions that, that are related to that one. By the way, let me say two things before we hit this last question. Okay, the first of which is this. Uh, if, if I say anything today that needs any clarification whatsoever that you need it from me, email me directly. Phil at crossgate.org. Most of y'all know by now, if you send it, I see it and I respond to it. Okay, so I can't say everything within the time frame allotted. So if you have any questions directly about something that I've said, hit me up on an email. I will be happy to get into a discussion with you about it. The other thing is this. Many of y'all know that Pastor Keith Caps, our Next Steps pastor, and I launched a podcast about uh, two months ago as, as a response to this series. What we do is we get together on the Monday after the sermon, and we do a follow-up podcast for about 15 or 20 minutes uh, about the particular topic. Okay, and many of y'all have listened to that so far. It's, it's, it's available on our website and social media. Okay, so what we're going to do tomorrow is we're going to record a podcast where we hit several of the questions that we couldn't get to today. So, so be on the lookout for that podcast. Check, check social media. Check the website in a few days, and that will be on there. I know we can't hit everything. Okay, let's do this, que this question about Christian nationalism. And we're, we're going to kind of blow through this one because our time is, is getting away from us. All right, I'm hearing a lot about Christian nationalism. What is it and what does the Bible say about it? Okay, so anytime you hear a phrase that's become such a cultural buzz phrase and buzzword as Christian nationalism, you always got to make sure you're defining it before you get into a discussion about it. Okay, it all depends what you mean by. So for some people, Christian nationalism would simply mean I'm a Christian and I love my country. Nothing wrong with that. Okay. Some people would say that Christian nationalism means that, that we are arguing that America is a Christian nation. And again, depending on what angle you're taking when you say America is a Christian nation, uh, I, I might agree or disagree with you. Okay? For example, historically, I would kind of agree that historically we are a Christian nation. Uh, no nation, look at the history, no nation has ever had a more Christian beginning than the United States. You look at the history of the First Great Awakening, which was a massive revival that swept across the 13 colonies shortly before the Revolutionary War. Historians will tell you that the colonies could not have pulled off the, the, the cohesion they needed in the, great, in, 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 the, in the Revolutionary War if there not had been this, this Great Awakening that took place 10 or 15 years prior. Uh, you look at the demographics of the Founding Fathers. I would say that, that many of the Founding Fathers were, were what I would call loosely evangelical, while others were Unitarians. Uh, of course, there were some that were deists. Uh, the fact is, I mean, if, if, the, founding, if the founding fathers wanted, wanted explicitly to make sure that America was known as a Christian nation, they did a lousy job of codifying in the Constitution. Because the Constitution doesn't even say anything about God, let alone Jesus. Okay, so, you know, and I, and I say that to their shame in some ways. If, if, I think they were operating off of assumptions. Certainly, if you look at their private writings, there was this over, overarching assumption that, that the Constitution and the American enterprise would only work in the context of religion, specifically a Christian faith. Okay, that, that was an assumption they made, but they certainly didn't codify that in the Constitution. Demographically, are we a Christian nation? Yes, but that's declining. Okay, I shared this with you in, in, a, in a message in this series from the Pew Research Center that just came out recently, talking about the decrease in the number of Americans who identify as Christians. Listen to this. The number of Americans who identify as agnostic, atheists, or don't affiliate with a particular religion has grown dramatically since the 1990s, so that by 2020, the nation's religious makeup looked like this, 64% Christian, 
30% unaffiliated, 6% members of all other religions. At the current rate of decline in Christian demographics by 2070, that's thus in 50 years from now, it will look like this. 39% Christian, that's where we're headed. 48% unaffiliated, 12% members of all other religions. So while we may technically be a Christian nation demographically now, that's not gonna last forever. Legally, are we a Christian nation? Well, of course not. I mean, there's no law that says you have to be a member of a church in order to vote or to hold public office or to be a citizen. Uh, there were a couple of colonies early in our history that said you had to be a member of a church to hold political office, but that didn't last very long. Morally, are we a Christian nation? Who are we kidding? I mean, the sin and the darkness and the wickedness that is prevailing in our land, we sing God bless America, why should he? Right? So in some ways, I'd say, yes, I, we, we are kind of a Christian nation, but in many ways, we're not a Christian nation. And if we say we are, we're probably inviting more judgment from God if we claim that we are a Christian nation. So the fact is, this is an emotionally charged topic. Uh, Christian nationalism, in many cases, is, is used to, to say we should use political participation and government policy to reestablish the United States as a Christian nation. Uh, demographically, legally, morally, through, through the ballot box, through legislation, through government policy, let's enact what we think our nation should be. Well, I got news for you folks. As I told you in a message a few weeks ago, you can't route revival through Washington. You cannot vote your way to the kingdom of God. Your witness is a thousand times more important than your vote. Now, I say that right on the, right on the heels of an election where I enthusiastically voted on Tuesday morning. I love to participate in the political process in our nation, but I also understand that first and foremost, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I personally would steer clear of, of the label of Christian nationalism because it has, it has become such a lightning rod and it's been adopted by so many people who I believe have some pretty bad views on how to accomplish uh, things in this world. What does the Bible say? Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13, one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So on the one hand, and by the way, let me just say to the worship team, because I think they're, they're chomping at the bit in the back to launch one more song, which I would love to do, but we're, we're, we're cut it close, so I'm gonna close out in prayer in just a minute. But listen to what the word of God says. Philippians chapter three, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a citizen of heaven, folks, first and foremost. I, listen, I signed a blank check over to the United States for 20 years of my life, up to and including my life, okay? So I, I am absolutely an, an ardent patriot, but my first and foremost allegiance is that I'm a citizen of heaven. But at the same time, I'm a citizen of the United States. Romans 13, one tells us that God ordained government and in his sovereign choice, he put me in the United States. And he put you in the United States. And we have rights and responsibilities as citizens of this great land. Voting, serving our nation in some way. I hope we're not all just self-centered, but somehow, some way, we are serving our nation. And certainly, as I said in the message about taking a stand in Babylon, we have a responsibility to ensure that the best things are taking place, that it's in our best interest as Christian people in the United States. And that is partially brought about by participating in the political process. Okay, so while I'm definitely not down with linking myself in any way or our church with Christian nationalism as it has become known in our culture today, I will tell you I am a Christian and I love 
my country. But most of all, I love my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, this, our time has flown by. I mean, I feel like we just got started, and we have so many other questions to answer. I will do my absolute best tomorrow to answer as many of these questions as possible on the podcast. But again, if there's anything we've said today that needs clarification or you would like to follow up just on something that wasn't asked at all, phil at crossgate.org. Reach out to me. I would love to continue the conversation. But let's just bow our heads and pray right now, and let's ask the Lord to reinforce in our hearts that the most important question we need to ask is, what does the Bible say? That our church would be a Bible-teaching church. That our church would be a church that is built on the Word of God. That we would not compromise the crystal clear teachings of the Scripture. And for those who are looking for a haven in the culture of rough seas and storm-tossed lives, they would know that they could come here and know that the anchor of the Word of God will always hold us firm at Crossgate Church. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for your Word. Jesus said in John chapter 17 and verse 17, sanctify them by the truth, your Word is truth. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63 that the words that I give you are spirit and they are life. So God, thank you for your word. From the, from the day that I trusted Jesus Christ, your word has, has had a place in my heart. And I've known that it is the only source of truth. I pray for those who are, who are dealing with life's issues right now. There's people listening to the sound of my voice who have children or grandchildren who have identified as LGBTQ. I pray that you'd allow them to speak the truth in love, to maintain bridges of relationships without compromising what, what the Word says. But God, help them to see a breakthrough in the lives of their children and grandchildren. And for those of us dealing with all kinds of life's challenges, I pray we would, we would always come back to the Word as individuals, as a church, as leaders. And God, I pray that you'd bless this day and this week as we prepare our hearts for Thanksgiving giving you thanks. John 3, 27, a man or a woman can receive nothing unless it is given to them from heaven. So we give you all the thanks. We give you all the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.